In our series in 1 Corinthians, we've got to chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. So let's turn to that now. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 11 of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So much stress in life is from people trying to be something they are not. So much stress in life is from people trying to put on an appearance and make a show of being something that is not really them. I have an older half-brother, and uh, he was big trouble. He got expelled from school and uh, never went back to school again. He was trouble. And when I, I, I think this was in his late teens, I don't know, it's well before I was born, he was taken to church. And people told him to pray a certain prayer. And he did pray the prayer. And they said, great, you're a Christian now. You've prayed that prayer, you're a Christian. And after a while, he said to my dad, I can't keep this up. I can't keep this up. It's a pretense. I'm no different from what I was before. No different, really. This Christianity, there's nothing to it. And it's been a convenient excuse to reject it ever since. You see, he was trying to be something he wasn't. Because he'd been told, you prayed the prayer, that's it, you're a Christian. Now, he's trying to live it. But he wasn't, it wasn't real inside. He was trying to be something he wasn't. Christianity is not trying to be something we aren't. Christianity is not trying to make ourselves better people. Christianity is God making us different and then us living in line with what he's made us. My aim for this evening, I've got a simple aim and it's this, for you to know who you are and not live like who you were. You got that? That's the aim for this evening. For you and me to know who we are and not live like who we were. I'm saying that to Christians, to people trusting Jesus. We need to know who we are in Jesus and not live like who we were before we came to Jesus. Now, if you're not a Christian, first you need that change. You need to come to Jesus and put his trust in you and God will change you. You need God to make you someone new. Because otherwise there is no are and were. You're just the same person as you always were. So this evening is about knowing who you are and not living like who you were. Let's see that from, let's get into 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11. And you won't be surprised to hear that I've got three things from this. And the first one is this. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is verses 9 and 10. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. I was involved in some evangelism and I was talking to a man who was a drunkard. 
But I was having a difficult job talking to him because he claimed he believed the gospel. And he didn't just claim it in a vague way. The more I talked to him, the more he seemed to know. Oh, yes, he said he was trusting in Jesus' death for forgiveness of sins. Oh, yes, whatever I said, he agreed with, yes. And I didn't even need to say it. Some of it he seemed to know already. He was trusting in Jesus. And he needed the death of Jesus. And because of the death of Jesus, he would be fine, whatever happens and whatever he does. But the man was a drunkard. And I was stumped. What do you make of that? Well, I shouldn't have been stumped. Because the answer is verses 9 and 10. Let's see again. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the... And then we have a list of various different sins. It is not a comprehensive list, but it does include drunkards. It is clear. It is definite. Such sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what did we hear this morning? If you hear this morning... And sorry if you weren't, I'm going to refer to this morning a bit, but I I think it will still make sense. We heard about God wants to be reconciled with sinners. And because God wants to be reconciled with sinners, the Bible, in the book of Romans, even says God justifies the wicked. What an amazing phrase. God justifies the wicked. And yet that same Bible, written by the same Apostle Paul, says the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how do you reconcile those? What's going on? Has Paul abandoned his belief in the gospel that is taken hold of by faith in Jesus? No, no. It's Paul knows what real faith in Jesus is like. And he knows if you trust Jesus, you will trust what he says about sin. And if you trust Jesus, you're not just trusting him for heaven, you're trusting what he says about how to live now. And if you trust Jesus, you're trusting him to be your saviour. And what does that mean? I'm sure the children know this, don't you? Think of Christmas time and that famous verse, Joseph was told about the baby to be born, call him Jesus, why? Because he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. Not in their sins. Well, in a sense, it is in. It's while we're in our sins, he comes to save us, but out of our sins, from our sins. And so, God gives us this serious warning, verse 9. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. God justifies the wicked. But those who remain wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it has to be said. And the Apostle Paul was a good pastor. He knows he needs to give this warning because it is easy to convince yourself you're a believer and carry on in sin and tell yourself it'll all be fine. It's easy to tell yourself, well, it would be better if I didn't do this sin. Yes, it would be better if I didn't, but it will all be okay. It will all be all right in the end because I'm a believer. But the Bible here is saying, no, you're not. No, you're not if your attitude is one of carrying on in sin. If you're not repenting of sin, if you're not turning from your sin, you are not trusting the Jesus who tells you that is the way to live. 
If you trusted Jesus, you'd do what he says and turn from your sin. So these weren't verses here, verses 9 and 10, are a warning that repentance is not optional. Turning from sin is not optional. These verses say to us, if you don't turn from your sin, you won't just be a less fruitful Christian. You won't just be, well, a bit of a maybe a grade down type of Christian. You won't just miss out on some rewards and blessings. You won't just be a poorer sort of Christian. No, these verses say you won't inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you will be shut out of heaven. These verses are crystal clear and there's no getting round them. Repentance is not optional. But notice I say repentance is not optional. I must make it very clear, must make it very clear here. These verses are not about people who sin and are sorry then for their sin and turn from their sin. Look at the language. The language is always very careful in the Bible. The language is always very precise. What people does it say won't inherit the kingdom of God? Verse 9, the wicked is describing a settled pattern. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers. In each case, the word describes a persistent way of life. Not a person who commits adultery, but an adulterer. It's a persistent way of life. If you sin, and then you wish you hadn't, and you are sorry for your sin, and you wonder, am I a verse 9 person? I, I, I'm shut out of the kingdom of God. And you wonder about that. What does the Bible have to say to you? Well, many things. I'll give you one example. 1 John 1 verse 9. The Bible says to you, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Or a few verses on, 1 John 2 verse 1, it says, John says, I write these things to you so you will not sin, but if you do, we've got one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ the righteous one. What if you then go and sin in the same way again? You've done it again. What does the Bible have to say to you? Same thing. 1 John 1 verse 9 again, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And you've still got one speaking in your defence. He hasn't sat down and said, no, I've had enough now. He's still speaking in your defence. What if you do it again? Oh, again. And you're full of sorrow. And you think, what a weak fool I am. What a sinner I am that I do such things. What does the Bible have to say to you then a third time? 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just for, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus is still speaking in your defence. Why am I confident it still works a third time? Do you remember the disciples of Jesus came to him and they said, what if our brother sins against us? What should we do? Jesus said, if your brother sins against you and comes and repents, in other words, expresses sorrow, recognises what he's done, he said, forgive him. And he said, even if he does that 77 times, 77 times. By the way, don't take the 77 literally. You keep account and when it gets to 77, you look in your diary, he's done it 77 times. That's it. Next time, I'm really going to hit him. No, 
The 77, and by the way, some translates, there are some manuscripts of the Old Testament where it's 70 times 7. It's no coincidence it's got the numbers 7 in it. Numbers of completeness in the Bible. It's saying, you keep going. Now, does Jesus require us to be more forgiving than he is? Does Jesus say, I'll forgive you up to 30 times, and 30 is enough? Oh, no. 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 For those who mourn their sins, and they wish they hadn't, and they take them to Jesus, there is infinite patience in Jesus. Infinite, limitless patience in Jesus. For those who are careless... And think, well, I'm all right, I'm a believer. I'll get away with it. I might lose a few blessings. I might not be the best person in church, but I'll be all right in the end. I've got my place in heaven because Jesus has done it for me. You're not even in the kingdom of God. You're not even in God's family. You are wrongly claiming the blessings and promises of God. You can't get round it. It's hearing God's words. Now, I've given you the main teaching of verses 9 and 10. That's basically all I'm going to say about verses 9 and 10. But I have to admit, there is a little detail in verses 9 and 10 that might sort of jump out at you and that our society is interested in. Can you see? There's some phrases that our society will say, whoa, what's going on here? You know what they are, don't you? And the fact you know says something about how big this is in our society. A few years ago... An Australian rugby player called Israel Folau, he tweeted a tweet, if that's the right verb and noun, um, and it was basically this verse. It was very similar to this verse. Was there outrage as he defended the drunkards? Was there outrage he defended the adulterers and the slanderers? No. Silence there. But there certainly was outrage he defended the gay people. And he ended up basically losing his job over it, even though he was Australia's biggest rugby star at the time. In other words, here's the issue that jumps out from these verses to our society. It talks about male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. They're very strange phrases, but they're basically two ways of describing what today is called gay or homosexual activity. Now... There's loads that could be said about this, but I'm not going to now. Why not? Because I want to avoid the subject. No, actually, but because it's not the main point of the passage. It's very clear here that these are sins, these activities, but they're mentioned twice in a list of ten. It's a sin that's mentioned six times in the Bible, and it's a very big book, isn't it? And out of those six times it's mentioned, how many times is it shown to be a sin? Six out of six. Now, there's something about the right balance. It's mentioned very few times in a very big book, but all of the mentions show it to be a sin. I think that's all I will say for the moment. If you want to hear more about it, ask me. But I haven't got time in this sermon to preach on it because it would take us off the main subject. It's an important subject in our society, but it's it's not the main subject here. So you'll have to ask me if you want to hear more, or if you've got questions about it, which I am very willing to try to answer because it is an important subject. 
But let's get back onto the main subject. Why won't the wicked inherit the kingdom of God? Remember, Christianity isn't about trying to be someone you are not. Christianity says, know who you are, don't live like who you were. So let's move on now to verse 11. And secondly, we have this. That is what some of you were. Do you see that in verse 11? And that, the list that's just been in verse 9 and 10, is what some of you were. Now, let's not fail to see what a wonderful phrase this is. It is a wonderful phrase. It means in the church in Corinth, there were people who had been male prostitutes and homosexual offenders. Think of that. They're part of the church now. It means in the church in Corinth, there were people who had been swindlers. There are people who had been slanderers. Think of that. And if that does not as much shock horror to us, maybe we've, we're not really in line with the Bible. Yeah, slanderers, that's not shock horror. Male prostitutes, shock horror. Well, we're out of line with the Bible there then. Is slandering a sin that matters? In the church in Corinth, there were people who used to go to the idol temple and offer sacrifices to grotesque idols. Not just grotesque in their appearance, but in what they represented. And now they're part of the church and they're worshipping the Lord Jesus. The gospel is powerful. And down through history, it has in practice proved to be powerful as it's rescued people who've committed all sorts of sins. Last summer, my family were on holiday and and we went to a little church and we really enjoyed being there, meeting with the people and worshipping and the preaching was good, except there was one thing that made me, I think us actually, cringe a bit. The preacher said, I, I think he said it twice, he said, oh look, you're all such lovely people, look at you. You're all such good people. Of course, there's there's no one here who's murdered anyone. Of course, there's no one here who's committed adultery. But have you hated someone? Or have you lusted? Now, it made me cringe a bit because does he know there's no one there who's murdered someone? In most churches, there's, there's someone who's killed their unborn baby. Does he know there's someone, there's no one there who's committed adultery? And if there is, what are they supposed to think? Well, I must be beyond the pale. No hope for me. Because you see, the minister presumes there's no one as bad as me here. There's just people who've committed some smaller sins. It's most unhelpful. And the good news is, verse 11, that is what some of you were. In the church of Jesus Christ, there are people who have murdered The church of Jesus Christ, who belong to Jesus, there are people who have murdered, but there are no murderers. In the church of Jesus Christ, there are people who have committed what the Bible calls, I know our society will hate this, but the Bible calls unnatural perversion. But there are no homosexual offenders. In the church of Jesus Christ, there are people who have torn apart others with their slanderous words. But there are no slanderers. Because verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were. Put the emphasis on the word were. It's good news there are people who used to be like that, but notice were. That's what some of you were. You are no longer that person. 
God has changed you. Now, you might still struggle with the temptation, but the Christian struggles against it. Doesn't just say, it's fine anyway, isn't it? It's the way that God's made me, so I'm going to go with it. You might sometimes, in fact, you might often fall for it again, but you repent because God has made you a different person. That's why I say there are people in the church of Jesus who have murdered. Praise God, even in the UK today, there will have been people in prison going to the prison chapel and worshipping the Lord Jesus who are in prison for murder. But there are no murderers in the church of Jesus because it is no longer their identity. And they are guilty in the records of the United Kingdom government, but they are not guilty in the records of God in heaven. It's no longer their identity. It's no longer their character. The old them has gone. A new person has come. In the church of Jesus, there are people who have murdered, but there are no murderers. In fact, I would say this. There are no sinners in the church of Jesus. What do you think of that? There are no sinners in the church of Jesus. Well, sadly, we sin. Sadly, we often sin. But I don't think the Bible calls children of God sinners. It calls them saints. Oh, we can confess to God we sin repeatedly, and it's still there in our hearts. But I don't think we confess to God we're sinners, because I don't think we are. No, we are saints. That's what God calls us, and we shouldn't call ourselves something different. Now, remember, what am I trying to get across this evening? Christian living isn't making yourself something. It's living in line with what God has made you. Know who you are so you don't live like who you were. Let's have an example. You go to visit some friends, and there is little six-month-old Ed sitting in his high chair. I can't even remember if you do sit in a high chair at six months old, do you? I don't know. Anyway, he's sitting in his high chair and he is stuffing food in his mouth and it's going all over his face. And his parents say, Ed, don't be such a baby. Do they? That's not very sensible, is it? Because he is a baby. Why is he saying to him, don't be such a baby when he is a baby? Right, you go back to visit them six years later. And there is Ed, getting towards seven years old. And if he now is smearing the food all over his face, feel free to say, well, leave it to the parents probably, don't be such a baby. He, could, he ought to be told, don't be such a baby, because he isn't a baby, and he shouldn't act like one and throw a tantrum and smear his food over his face. Now, do you get the point? He, he should be like who he is, not like who he was. Christian brother or sister, when you sin, tell yourself, don't be a baby. Don't be a baby. Don't live like what you used to be. I'm acting and thinking and speaking like I used to be. I've got to know who I am so I don't live like who I was. Now, that leads to the third thing we need to ask, which is, how did this change happen? So we've had, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. God justifies the wicked, but we're not to stay wicked. Because that 
was what we were. So the third thing is, how does that change happen? Verse 11 still, but you were washed. But you were washed. Now, verse 11 is a wonderful verse. It gives us a doctrine lesson. Doctrine. You know what doctrine is? When I was a child, my church had basic doctrine classes. And I went to school one Monday and I had to write down, this was in infant school, what did I do at the weekend? And I went to the teacher and said, how do you spell doctrine? I went to a basic doctrine class. I think the, the teacher thought it was basic doctoring. Like, was I some precocious, precocious child learning to be a doctor? Now, it's nothing to do with being doctors. Doctrine just means teaching about Christian beliefs. Teaching about Christian beliefs. Now, what do you think of doctrine? Does that sound dull? Does that sound dry? Does that sound impractical? Verse 11, here we have doctrine to make your heart sing. Here we have doctrine to make you clear and secure in who you are in Jesus Christ. And to put it in context, remember the the point of the context, here we have doctrine to make you turn from sin. That's the point. It's practical. So let's have a look at it. How did we go from are a sinner to were a sinner? You see that? Christian, you've gone from are a sinner to were a sinner. How? Three things were done to us. You ready for the three? First, washed. But you were washed. Now, let's just go back a minute to the phrase before. And that is what some of you were. The word that, it's actually, and these things is what some of you were. It's a very unusual way of phrasing it. These things is what some of you were. It's a very strange phrase. It seems to be designed to express horror at these sinners. He's listed people, sinners, not actions, but people. And then he says, these things is what some of you were. It's as if it's this expression of horror. These things, that's what you were. How disgusting. How filthy. Do, Do you... Do you get a sense of filth and disgust when you think back to what you were? When you see this list of sins? When you see yourself in them? But, verse 11, you filthy person were washed. Children, do you do some cooking sometimes? And afterwards, do you have some spoons you've used? And look at what's on them. And and there are some leftovers burnt onto a dish. And they're, they're a bit disgusting. And then do you wash them up? I hope so. Or maybe you've got a dishwasher and you put them in the dishwasher. And then do they come out clean and just like new? And that's what God has done to the Christian. Clean in his sight, all the dirt of sin washed away and gone. You were washed. What's the second thing done? Verse 11, you were sanctified. By the way, these aren't in order of time. Don't don't think the order here is one was done, then the other, then the other. Don't worry about the order. But secondly, you were sanctified. Now, this one needs a bit of explaining, both because it's an unusual word, sanctified, at least outside of church, but also because we tend to use it as Christians differently from what it means here and differently from what it means in most of the Bible. 
You see, if you buy a book on sanctification, it's usually about growing in holiness. It's usually about fighting sin and growing in the Christian life. But that's not what it means here. And it's not what it means most of the time in the Bible. It might mean that in some places, although I haven't yet found them. By the way, don't throw away your books on sanctification. Just cross out the title and put growing in holiness. Sanctified means something different here. I'll illustrate it like this. In our kitchen, we have a toaster. And that toaster has written in it, on it, with a permanent marker, gluten-free only. Right? It is only to be used for gluten-free bread. It is not to be used for any other bread. It must not get contaminated with gluten. It is set apart for gluten-free bread, and it's got it written on. And it shouldn't get contaminated with anything else. That's a bit what sanctified means here. I'll explain. You see, in a similar way to that toaster, in the Old Testament temple there were pots and pans. And the pots and pans had written on them, holy to the Lord. Now, what did that mean? Did it mean those pots and pans are growing in holiness? Did it mean those pots and pans are gradually over time getting less sinful? No, it meant they were set apart for the Lord's use. They were only to be used for the worship of God. You were not to take them and use them for cooking your dinner or washing your clothes. Now, are you starting to see what sanctified means? The toaster was a little example of the pots and pans. And the pots and pans are a little example of us. Set apart for the Lord. The pots and pans and the toaster have got something written on them. Well, we in a sense have, the book of Revelation says, we have the name of Christ written on us. We are called Christians. And it says we are set apart for Jesus. We are holy to the Lord. Just like the pots and pans, we're not to be used for anything else. We're not to be used for anything that isn't for God's glory. Now, let that sink in, because actually there's an awful lot of the Christian life in that phrase. Holy to the Lord, set apart for him, not to be used for anything that's not for God's glory. That is well worth meditating on. It doesn't mean you spend all your time reading the Bible and singing hymns and praying. It means for everything you do, you should say, is this something suitable for someone set apart for the Lord? Is this something I can do for God's glory? Because I'm like those pots and pans in the temple. I'm only to be used for him, not for anything else. That's what sanctified means. Then there's a third thing. Look for the third word done to us. Justified. What is justified? What's the big building on Jubilee Way in town? The big building on the A6 opposite Pinfold Gate. It's the law court. And justified is a word about the law court. It's a word for the judge in the law court declaring someone innocent. Declaring someone right in the eyes of the law. Righteous according to the law. And in this case, it's God the judge declaring us innocent, declaring us righteous according to his law. And the wonderful thing to notice is what tense is the word in, in verse 11? Children, do you know your language? English, 
have English lessons? What tense is it in? In verse 11, it's past tense. The Christian is not waiting for the verdict. The Christian is not wondering what the verdict will be. The verdict has been declared at conversion, justified, innocent, righteous. I heard of someone being given a book to illustrate this called The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Now, I object to the word sinner there, as I hope you remember from earlier, but let's not dwell on that for the moment. What do you think was in the book when he opened it? It was a book of blank pages. And the person who gave it to him was making the point that the justified person means your record has been wiped clean. All the sins wiped away. Now, I actually, you might think this is a bit of a quibble and me just trying to be a bit clever. It's not. I actually think the book shouldn't have blank pages. I think it should have something else in it. I think the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner should be a book and you open it up and in it you read. The life of the Lord Jesus. In it you read all about his goodness and his righteousness. In it you read the record of his perfect life of love. Because justified doesn't just mean God wipes out our sin and we're neutral. No, it means he counts Jesus' righteousness to us. And we are counted as lovely, good, pleasing in his sight. Do you remember if you hear this morning? This is actually what we heard this morning, that swap you read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, how did all this happen? How did all this happen? Well, let's look at verse 11 again. Do you notice all those words? They're passive. <laughs> We've had about what tense they're in, past tense. Sorry, I don't normally go in for grammar lessons. But they're also passive. You know what a passive or an active verb is? Active would be, you washed yourself. Passive is, you were washed. Someone did it to you. Active would be, you justified yourself, but you can't. We can't do it. Passive is, you were justified. God did it to you. That's the emphasis, all three of them. God did them to us. And how did he do them to us? Verse 11, in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you remember this morning? Sorry if you weren't here. You can have a listen to it online. The example of the king marrying a prostitute. Great example from Martin Luther of conversion. And it's such a suitable example in so many ways. And one of the ways is this. How can the death of a man 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem wash you and me? It's nothing to do with us, is it? How can it wash us? How can we be called holy to the Lord? We're so unholy in practice. How can this swap happen so we are justified? Why should the righteousness of Jesus be counted to us and he take our sin? Isn't that just plain unfair? And the answer is be married to Jesus. In other words, it's all about being one with him. United to Jesus. Just like a husband and wife. At least in English culture, what happens? The wife takes the husband's name. Miss Philpot becomes Mrs. Pettit. Yeah? And it's a sign of coming under his headship. And the two being one. And it's a, it's a little picture of conversion. 
It all depends on being united to Jesus. And you take on his name and you come under his headship. The two become one. Everything depends on being in Jesus. Otherwise, justified, sanctified and washed would just be a lie. And what else? How else is it done? Verse 11. What's the final phrase? It's all done by the spirit of our God. He, the spirit of our God, opens our eyes to see Jesus and softens our hearts to respond to Jesus. So we believe and repent. Now, notice that. That's very important. We get both of those right. He must open our eyes and soften our hearts. We must believe and repent. He doesn't believe and repent for us. No, we must believe and repent. But we won't do it unless and until he opens our eyes and softens our hearts. And that way of starting the Christian life is how the Christian life continues. He, the Holy Spirit, reassures us, you are washed, you are justified, you are sanctified, and then we must live in line with that. Have you been washed? Have you been justified? Have you been sanctified? In the name of the Lord Jesus, if you haven't, it is offered to you now to put your trust in Jesus and receive this gift straight away. And if you have, then know who you are and don't live like who you were. Let's pray.